One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. I'll fix it up with mom and dad, then I'll call you. I know how to use a felitone now. A telephone, Ron, said Hermione. Honestly, you should take muggle studies next year. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is a special episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, today we're continuing our collaboration with the Greater Good Science Center and exploring this concept of intellectual humility. We had a special episode with Professor Daryl Van Tongeren in our Book 4, Chapter 14 episode. And we are going to, you know, prove that we remember what Daryl said and really took some of this to heart and continue to explore this theme. That's right. So in our previous episode, we did this for all of book four. But before we wrap up our partnership with the Greater Good Science Center, we wanted to take a moment to think about intellectual humility in the context of all seven books. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. Matt, as we jump into this conversation, though, I am wondering, I swear to you, I paid attention. But I'm wondering if you could just remind our listeners what the etymology of humility is. I remember that it has something to do with hummus. That's right. It does have to do with hummus or hummus, but not the delicious chickpea-based food. Obviously. Humility derives from the word hummus, which just means like low to the earth, low to the ground. And I think it suggests one definition of humility, which is not necessarily the one that we're thinking about when we think about intellectual humility, which is just like lowly. Like there's an idea of to be humble means to be lowly, to make yourself low under and against like things that are higher right and for that reason like it's associated with meekness in a way that can be problematic especially when you think of how valorizing virtues like that 
and then projecting them upon people who are already oppressed, like that can be problematic. Right. So that's what humility is. And that's not necessarily what we're talking about when we talk about intellectual humility. Although I think humility is more complicated and we can think about it in other ways. Intellectual humility actually broadens that idea of humility away from just like knee-jerk lowliness. The word intellect comes from two Latin words put together, legere, which means to read and inter. So it means like reading between the lines Mm -hmm. or like sorting through something. And so this idea of like intellect as being able to pay attention carefully to something and kind of draw what's important, figure out where the subtleties are. That's Mm -hmm. what intellect suggests, right? And so then when you pair these words together, humility and intellectual or intellect, intellectual humility, what you have is not like knee-jerk lowliness. It's more like the kind of restraint or caution to like really explore all the possibilities, to place yourself in a position where you don't assume that you know all, but you're willing to pursue knowledge in lots of different directions, right? And this is something that, you know, Daryl really impressed upon us in our former conversation. That sense of humility is not just like lowliness for lowliness's sake. It's more just like a posture of openness to that which you do not know. Realizing that the world is more complex than any single human brain. And there's always more to know about the world. And it's a lot less like loneliness and a lot more like openness and curiosity. Matt, it's uncanny. I feel like we talk about her a lot. But the way that you were just describing intellectual humility really reminded me of a philosopher that I know we both love, Simone Weil. That she talks about prayer as attention and love as attention. And that you know, with your definition of intellectual humility coming from the etymology and the conversation with Daryl, right? Like intellectual humility could be kind of a version of prayer where it's this close attention and openness, right? And reading between the lines and asking yourself again, you know, she has this great essay called On the Right Use of School Studies, where she talks about studying Greek as a way to practice paying attention in order to practice prayer. It's an example that I think straddles the line of what you're talking about, which is like this meekness as oppression, right? It's like telling children, no, 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 no. Studying Greek isn't just about studying Greek, but it's also about prayer. Like, let's give you, you know, some extra meaning to motivate you. But I find her argument compelling. And I like thinking about true intellectual humility or not even true or pure, but an honest attempt at intellectual humility is being prayerful. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the other thing that you noted, which is so important about what Simone Weil says, is that that kind of posture is inclined towards lovingness, right? Like to recognize that the other person in front of you is more complicated than you can understand is actually a posture of patience towards them. It's a recognition of their full humanity. You know, if you think about the people you love most in your life, right? Like the places I tend to go wrong with the people I love most in my life is when I feel like I know them better than they know themselves rather than like approaching them with a sense of mystery and maybe even like awe at how complicated and rich their inner lives are. And like having that posture of curiosity towards them is almost always more loving than like me coming in and saying, oh, I know what you need and I know who you are. Like that's that just seems controlling, obviously, and and wrong. And so I think you're right. I think this is what Simone Weil is getting at. You're also right that what binds them together is this capacity for attention, this willingness not to jump to a conclusion, not to be too hasty about believing we understand everything, allowing the world to be more mysterious than we can comprehend, 
is a posture of lovingness or can be a posture of lovingness towards the world. And, you know, I think that's why this partnership between the Greater Good Science Center and our podcast, like, makes sense because we are looking at these books as a way to help us approach the world and others from a more, like, curious and loving posture. It all makes sense. And it's why this partnership is one we we're so grateful for. I mean, the example that keeps coming to mind from Harry Potter on this topic is Molly's love for Fred and George and Mm. how we're really seeing a a lack of curiosity, right? She's just like, no, the path that you guys are going on is wrong Mm -hmm. and it's not going to get you financial security and take care of you later in life. And I think it comes from a really good place. It comes from the fact that she has been on this earth longer and is like, no, I know. I have seen the people who have succeeded and failed, and I don't want you to be poor in the same way that your father and I were, right? Like, And yet we know that she's wrong, that they're going to have great success. And, you know, what we wish we saw from her in her love is more curiosity, is, well, show me your business plan. Like, what what are you working on? And again, like, I am not judging Molly. I think that this is coming from a profound sense of love. But, like, that's just a moment that, like, someone who we love and think is so good about being curious and loving is coming up short. I mean, one of the biggest fights I had with my mom of beloved memory was I was in a PhD program before I came to seminary at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And I eventually ended up getting a PhD at Harvard, but I left a PhD program that I was already in to come to seminary. And my mom was like, what's the rush? She's like, finish the PhD. Like, why would you walk away from a PhD? Like, finish yeah. the PhD. And to be clear, my mom supported the idea of me becoming a priest. She thought I would become a priest. And it was all coming from a loving place, which is like, don't leave something on the table. That's security. That's that's legitimacy. That's credential. All this stuff, right? She's like, just don't walk away from it, especially after you've put work into it. I mean, everything turned out okay for me, and but it was this huge fight. It was because I th- knew what I wanted, and she thought she knew better for me what was good for me. I think I was right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think I think things have turned out okay. But it was all coming. This is what I meant. It, yeah. That like my mom still loved me even though she was in the wrong. Like this posture right. of lovingness is, doesn't mean you do or don't love necessarily, but it is a posture of like openness towards the other, which allows them to be most fully themselves, which can be a scary thing when you really care about someone and you are sure you know what is right for them better than they do because part of your love is protectiveness. And so it gets very complicated. And Molly is a perfect example of that because there is no question among anybody, Molly, Fred and George, that she loves Fred and George, right? Nobody questions that. It's just, she can't see what they see. She doesn't know what they know about themselves. Yeah. Matt, another thing that this is just reminding me of is I have such a clear memory of, I think it was the very first time that I went to like the adult service in synagogue. You know, we would go to temple most Saturday mornings and my brothers and I would go to the children's service. We'd go to the beginning of the adult service and then we would go to the children's service and be brought back for the end of the adult service with the prayers. And I, I really think this might have been the very first time that I was like, no, I want to I'm an adult. I'm seven. I get to stay here now. And the topic was humility. And I'm pretty sure that it was that Akida, the story of, yeah. you know, Abraham being willing to kill his son Isaac because God commanded him to. And I mean, like, really, the rabbi was advocating for this idea of right-sizedness that Mm. we are curious about with our own parents and with Molly of, 
no, there are times where you are the authority and like it's even okay to stand up to God, right? Like faithfulness does not have to be complete obedience. Yeah. I think he was he was really disturbed by the idea of sacrificing yeah. your own son in faith. Yeah. And there are moments where we should say no to God or say no to our moms who like don't understand us, right? Yeah. It just gets so complicated. And so I really love Daryl talking about right-sizedness as one of the things to consider when we are wondering what role we want humility to play in a certain moment. Of like, no, actually, right now, I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, what before we were friends or when we became friends, you were also my student. And I remember one of the things about you as a student is that you were always more interested in me and other faculty lecturing and less like in discussion. <laughs> and, you know, as a as a faculty person, there was some research that came out a few years ago about sort of active learning is better learning. And so they were all saying lecture less do engage like conversational stuff more. And so I was always trying to push towards that. And you would always say, like, but you have the Ph.D., like, yeah. I don't know this stuff. You know this stuff. I want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to hear what this other person has to say. I want to hear what you have to say. And interestingly, like, there's recent research that suggests actually lecturing is not as bad as they thought it was and active learning is not as good as they thought it was, that there is more benefit than folks thought. I was just reading an article about that. But th I hear the echo of your rabbi's sermon in that reaction. So since this is a Harry Potter podcast and not a podcast on the Torah, let's talk about some examples from, from Harry Potter. Great. You know, one thing that's really interesting to me about the Harry Potter world is how the Wizarding world and the Muggle world overlap so much, but also so little. Like sometimes in the same place. You know, there are wizarding villages in the middle of wherever. There's, you know, grim old places right in the middle of London. There are spaces right next to other spaces. And yet Ron doesn't know how to use a felitone, right? <laughs> or he just learned how to use it. Like these, the everyday objects that folks have in these respective communities, they have no familiarity with, right? And also it seems like very little curiosity about generally, Arthur Weasley's an exception. Right. Arthur is super curious he's derided about, for it. That's right, but he's derided for it. And that like this lack of curiosity, that's like one of the marks that Daryl spoke about of a lack of intellectual humility. And we see it between the, the wizarding world and the, the muggle world. You know, even Dumbledore seems like paternalistic towards the muggle world and all that they can't do or try to do with their meager skills. And that lack of understanding, I think, or lack of curiosity is not a strength of his. And we see it, you know, also in like more murderous wizards like sure. Voldemort and so forth. But then on the muggle side, you know, the, the Dursleys are actively anti-curious right. about the, the wizarding world, right? In spite of the fact that Lily was a witch and Harry is a witch and they have all kinds of reasons to be curious about it, to be at least open to the idea that people could live differently in the world and they have no no interest. So in some ways, like one of the like central structuring features of the book is this conflict between Wizarding World and Muggle World and that conflict only works because neither side is really deeply interested in understanding the other side. I am struck by the fact that I feel protective of both sides and their lack yeah. of humility, right? Like the Dursleys, I'm like, well, they have received nothing but violence from the wizarding world, right? Like yep. they should be more curious. They are abusers and horrible. And Lily was taken from Petunia from a young age. 
if they were more curious earlier on, I think that they would have a totally different relationship to the wizarding world, one of love and, you know, interest. And I think they would be more invited in. And so I, I do think their lack of curiosity is what gets them on this negative trail. But I also, like, really understand, you know, being scared of this. And then I also really feel for Dumbledore in the wizarding world. I can't imagine having a wand that can just heal or, like, pepper up potion. They have the cure for the common cold, right? And, like, the muggle world doesn't. So I can imagine being like, well, those are dummies. Like, <laughs> I don't know. How have they not figured yeah. this out? And I am not defending either position, obviously. I just, like, I, I think that if you have a tremendous amount of resources, like, I understand why you think that you're superior to others. I also think it's incredibly dangerous and it is not taking into account privilege and that just because other people don't have as many like actual resources as you doesn't mean that they don't have as much wisdom or intelligence or things to offer or as deep of inner lives, right? Like I think that we start to conflate these things of like, mm -hmm. well, I became financially successful and that is because I am better than you and I figured out some code to being alive. I just think that these are like very understandable mistakes and I want yep. to defend them because they are mistakes that I make. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's especially important to, to name the example of the Dursleys. As you say, they have reason to not be curious. If I'm curious with a rattlesnake and it bites me, <laughs> right. like I'm going to be less curious the next rattlesnake I see, right? Even if this is the sweetest, kindest rattlesnake that never wants to bite. Like I'm just, it's an understandable human response to be skittish or to think you understand the thing that harmed you. I mean, this is how knowledge works, right? We, we, And this is how kind of risk response works so I, I yeah i think i think you're right i mean petunia has had the longest history with the muggle world and for her it was like i think she was really curious and then jealous right because lily was taken away and then right lily was murdered and then she's just like nope this is dangerous evil like why would she trust wizards when the closest encounter she's had with a wizard one of the closest encounters she's had with a wizard was voldemort who killed her her sister, right? right? So of course she thinks she understands what this world is, or even if she doesn't understand, she doesn't have a lot of patience or curiosity about it because the threat is too great. On the other side, I think that's a really great example with, with wizards too, because I agree, right? Like with all this power they have in their wands, it almost speaks to the general history of intellectual humility among the wizarding community that there hasn't always been a Voldemort dominating right. muggles. I mean, if you look elsewhere in the history of humanity anytime people have had that much power over other people they have abused it right basically and in this one situation these wizards don't and there have been occasional struggles where a slytherin or a voldemort thinks that muggles are meant to be dominated and it hasn't happened there but it also does kind of happen because we know the elves are treated that way right house elves are treated that way goblins, goblins are treated that way it, right it happens in other in other categories here so it's not a, yeah, I, I, maybe I want to retract that a little bit because the wizards do kind of suppress and oppress communities in a very intellectually not humble way, if that's a good phrase. Yeah. <laughs> it is wild that, like, there's just no bilinguality, right? That literally <laughs> Arthur doesn't know how muggle money works. He doesn't know how the tube works. He doesn't, right, like, there's no electricity and... You know, you obviously have 
a tremendous amount of understanding for muggles in this situation. They do not know about the wizarding world, and it is a world that is kept deliberately secret from them. But the fact that introduction to muggle studies is not a required class at Hogwarts is just mind-boggling. Like, you live among them, right? It's something that, you know... I grew up with my mom speaking Spanish to us in the house because she was like, you live in Los Angeles. Like, you can't not speak Spanish here. Yeah. Right? Like, there's just a responsibility that we have to be able to speak to our neighbors. And the wizarding world does not take that seriously. Yeah, I think that's right. But the more I speak about it, like, boy, maybe this is more familiar to our own world than, than I want to acknowledge, right? We just... Here at, at Harvard, we just, I've spoken about this before on the podcast. A couple of years ago, we released the Legacy of Slavery Report, which is a kind of history, a historical study and analysis, and also a sort of confession of, of the ways in which this university has benefited from enslavement. This is the enslavement of Africans and their descendants, but also the enslavement of indigenous peoples. And there was recently a conference at Harvard that I attended on the legacy of the slavery of in, indigenous peoples. And there were lots of speakers who come from local tribes in Massachusetts and the Wampanoag and the Nipmuc tribes who were here speaking about 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 their experience of living in and around Harvard or in and among the people, the institution which which attempted to erase their culture and, and which took their land. And it, I just I learned a lot about these folks. One of the things that uh, indigenous Americans often say is like, we are still here. We never went right. anywhere. Right. And that was a lot of this conference. Like, we're still here. Like, if you don't know about us, that's just because you haven't been curious about us because we are still here. Right. Right. And we have this history. And one of the things I said at the conference over and over again was like, we we're glad that you're talking about this. But like, we already all know this history. Right. This is for you folks who have not been curious about it, curious enough about it for the last few hundred years. And, you know, I live down on Cape Cod and the Mashpee Wampanoag is one of the larger tribal organizations in the town right next to me. Right. And but again, like, you know, we live right next door to each other. But there was, I, you know, just a lack of openness, curiosity about the people who experience the world differently, who experience, have experienced history differently, that there was the same kind of lack of curiosity that that I'm at least from from my side that I'm kind of maligning in the in the Wizards and the Muggles of this book. So it's, even though it looks like dramatic and impossible or unlikely oh, yeah. in the series, maybe it's not. Like, I think we probably all live versions of this in our own lives. Oh, for sure. I know that I've talked about this before, but Timothy Snyder, who is a professor of the history of fascism, wrote this book that I really admire a lot called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, that is sort of a, like, how you know when tyranny is happening around you. And one of the things that I just think we see so clearly in book five, and this is obviously front of mind because it's the book that we're studying right now, is when governments start using the systems that they already have, but using them in a different way. And we really see that with the trial in book five, right? And what this is is a lack of curiosity. In theory, a trial should be about trying to find a truth. Right. Like that, that is technically what should be going on here. It is a search for justice. And we know that that is not what trials do a lot of the time. And you really, really see that both in the pensive of how trials were working during the time after Voldemort fell, but 
also, just with this trial with Harry, right? Like, the only sort of curiosity we get is about Harry's Patronus. There's like, what? You can do a Patronus? A fully corporal Patronus? How old are you? But, like, there isn't any curiosity about what actually happened. The fact that there were Dementors in Surrey. This is just theater. This is not a hearing. This is not a trial. This is using power structures that already exist in order to have the desired outcome. And obviously Dumbledore comes and is a major pebble in that wheel, you know, like, and prevents this from happening. But it is an early sign of fascism when you're like, this looks like what used to be (laughs) something, but you are using it for truly nefarious purposes. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that Fudge and Dolores Umbridge in particular kind of embody that lack of curiosity. Like, they think they know who Harry is already. They think they understand teenagers, right? Teenagers are selfish, and that's this is what they're saying, right? I mean, I think right. we know developmentally that teenagers tend to be more self-centered than others, but that doesn't mean that's all they are or all they can be, right? But Umbridge and Fudge are like, oh, the only possible explanation here is Harry made up a story. And we are not actually interested in anything else other than that explanation, which is dumb because they also have a dead kid. They have Cedric and no right. good explanation for how he died. Right. And Harry's offering one. And even if they don't believe him, right, I, I can understand like maybe why they would not want to believe or not be able to get, to believe yet that, that Voldemort had returned. But they still have an unanswered question that they seem tragically and kind of criminally uncurious about, which is that a child at the wizarding school died and the only witness is a person they think is selfish and making up stories. And that's the only explanation they'll take from him. At the very least, they should want to learn more from him, right? Rather than try to silence him, rather than assume his story is is without credential. I mean, even if you thought he was lying, you should want to figure out why is this kid lying? Right. Right. Something awful happened. And this kid is making up a story. Why would he be doing that? Right. Other than, like, the only reason they come up with is, like, oh, he's glory-seeking, whatever. These are just, like, even if we, you know, give them every benefit of the doubt, they are still making the worst possible assumption. It's because they're not curious, because they think they already know what happened, rather than exploring and acknowledging that the world is more mysterious than their assumptions can accommodate. And again, like, I accuse and then I'm like, but I understand. Yeah. And like, what a yeah. horrible truth to confront, right? That like yep. you gave permission for there to be this tournament that was supposed to be all about bringing people together and instead a child died, right? Yeah. Like so much easier to be like, well, that kid was incompetent or Harry is a liar yeah. than to believe that you were complicit in the death of a child as innocently and as well intended as your complicity might have been. That's right. And I think that's where the humility part comes in, right? Like, it's often right. hard for us to believe that we could be the problem. Right. <laughs> right. And so we'll be convinced of answers where somebody else is the problem. But right. if they were really curious, they would discover that this plan and this government has been part of the problem right. and part of the reason why Voldemort was able to to arise. I mean, it makes me think of just another really interesting facet of all this. I feel like you've been this kind of voice of understanding in this conversation so far, Vanessa, like you have actually shown a lot of intellectual humility towards these characters. I think that's also just really important for us as readers of these novels. I mean, you will hear us on this podcast. You listeners will hear us saying, you know, Dumbledore did this wrong. Hagrid did that wrong. Criticizing various characters for things they're doing. But, you know, there isn't a major character in these novels who has not suffered some kind of complex trauma. 
And it's really hard to kind of project one's own experience upon them and say like, oh, I know why they're doing something or I know why they're reacting the way they are or how they ought to be reacting. I mean, that's exactly the thing we just began this conversation talking about, that urge to impose understanding upon another rather than being curious about how they're experiencing and how they're acting. It doesn't mean that we have to withhold all judgment or that every action a person takes is the right one. But especially when we talk about these characters who have lived through this awful war, who are about to live through another awful one, who have seen people they love tortured and murdered and all these things. It's a good reminder for us just as readers to kind of practice the same virtues when we talk about these characters and to think about how they're reacting. And I think you're doing that, right? Like we can say that, and you did say what the Dursleys do is wrong while also saying, I get how they ended up doing the wrong thing. Right. (laughs) Right. You're able to generate understanding even when levying judgment and correct judgments. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. I do want to just spend a minute talking about Neville, who I think 
has emerged as I read and reread these books is just like a real hero Mm -hmm. in every sense of the word. There's a form of humility that I wish he had about himself. And I think that this speaks to right-sizedness. You know, one of the things that Daryl talked about, which is that Neville really just believes that he's like basically a squib. Mm-hmm. And because of that, McGonagall is saying to him, no, you're better than this. No, I'll talk to your grandmother, right? Like, And then we see him have some confidence built in the DA and then get the right wand and, you know, really start to step in to this more right-sized role for himself. And it's just so interesting, all of the different reasons that this has been going on, right? Like, there is this mentality that there are squibs and they are less powerful and entitled than non-squibs. And then there's also this like concern about being a student and, you know, maybe being a different kind of learner. And then there's financial access to the right tools. And there, right, like there are all of these reasons, not to mention his like huge trauma of having parents who were tortured when he was a baby, tortured into not remembering him. And so there are just like all of these reasons why this child's confidence is crushed. And it is a minor miracle that he comes out on the other side of this. And I think that part of this is that like no one is curious about him and where his powers might lie and where his talents might lie, right? And then Professor Sprout is like, hey, kid, I think you might have a talent here. And McGonagall, again, is just like questioning why his grandma's saying certain things, right? Like some adults in his life start questioning this narrative that he has about himself. And then Harry starts questioning this narrative he has about himself. And he believes that it's possible. Dumbledore in book one, right? Yeah, I was just going to say Dumbledore, right? Yeah, yeah. like here's 10 points. Like you weren't wrong to stand up to your friends. Yeah. Because you can understand like how someone would not count that as bravery, standing up right. to your friends. Totally. But Dumbledore says like, nope, that's bravery. You got it too. Right. And it yep. kind of authorizes, legitimizes that bravery so that Neville can right size. <laughs> right. <laughs> right size himself and like start to inhabit the world where his talents are and have confidence in them. Yeah, I think it's right. There are there are these moments in the first few books where Neville is drawn out of himself. Not because grownups or adults do anything like they don't they don't oversell it. No. They're not like you're the bravest and you get a hundred points. It's ten. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's just like being right sized, like giving credit where it's due is all that he needs for him to kind of emerge into that form of humility, which is like this right sizedness that that Daryl talked about. I love this concept of right-sizedness because I think it can really point us away from a certain kind of self-loathing, right? Mm. Of Like, let's admit that you're not that bad, right? Like, let's actually try our best to be curious about where that's coming from and if that's coming from a trauma, from, you know, other people's stories about you, from a mental health concern, but like, Actually, you're not the worst. Yeah. And I just think it's a life of constantly questioning and constant curiosity. Yeah, I think this is the thing about intellectual humility, right? The intellectual part is from the etymology that we talked about is supposed to invite us into recognizing the complexity of things and that committing to yourself or trying to decide to be right-sized means like self-reflection, right? Like right. serious curiosity about yourself as a complex person yourself. And 
if you just say like, oh, I suck at everything right. or I'm great at everything, you're avoiding both, right? You're not actually doing the hard work, right? And I think the other thing about like intellectual humility is like being willing to understand that you were wrong, right? Right. And that's what I think was really important about what you just said, that it's just kind of like this posture. You have to be persistent about right-sizedness because you might think you're right-sizing and then you'll do something and be like, oh, I thought I was... I am a little bit smaller than that. I should have yeah. aimed lower. Or, oh boy, I could have done more than that. I should have aimed higher. Like it requires this idea that like, oh, I, I think I know, but I'm willing to be proven wrong. And this is something right. that Neville starts to cultivate, right? Like right. he begins, as you said, with just, I'm bad at everything. I'm good at nothing, which is not, that's not self-reflective at all. But then people start recognizing and acknowledging where he does have gifts. And he starts to think like, oh, maybe I can do more. Maybe I can be more. And he starts trying things on. And sometimes he goes wrong because he brings a plant onto the train and it sprays goo everywhere, right? That right. was a little bit too big. He should have been a little bit smaller, right? But then he, you know, figures other stuff out. And he starts to realize that being right-sized is like a process, is an unending kind of posture and process of self-reflection, which is what it means to be a good person, I think. Yeah, and I love the idea that, like, when we're younger, the pendulum is swinging wildly of like, oh, too small, too big. And then as we get older, hopefully, like the degrees at which, you know, we're swinging get smaller, but we never stop swinging, you know, like there's just like always this like, oh, like I was supposed to be the leader here. I was supposed to step in more. I was the adult in the room. I should have done better. Or this like, I, that was not about me. I should have. I blew it. I blew it. I should really take a step back. Yeah. I remember I was once watching a game of pickup basketball and just watching these young men mess up right? Like by fouling or whatever it was, stepping in and go saying, my bad, my bad. And yeah. what blew my mind is I had grown up watching sort of professional basketball and there's a referee who's like, that was a foul. Yeah. And watching people be like, my bad, that was a foul. Or someone saying, hey, you fouled me. And the other person being like, yep, I did. This like saying my bad, really, I was like, oh, we can self-regulate and we can say my bad and then start dribbling again and just move on. It was just so beautiful. It was like watching an orchestra play of like these like minor corrections and this trust and faith in one another. Yeah. That is one of the beautiful things about sports. I mean, one of the gifts of a basketball game or a Quidditch match is that like you mess up, but the game moves on immediately. Right, right? exactly. You're, you're in the flow of it. I think that when we make mistakes in our own life, or at least me, I'm like, oh boy, now I have to go to bed and try to fall asleep and wake up tomorrow and figure out, right? Like it doesn't feel yeah. like you're in the flow, but you actually are in the flow. Cause like you said, like this is just, this is just life. It's just always moving on. And yeah. I mean, it's easier in a game because it does end, right? You're like 90 That's minutes yep. and I'm off the soccer field or, yep. you know. But yeah, I do think that there's something gracious about that mentality. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. 
Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So, Matt, we're going to bless a character across all seven books for embodying a certain kind of humility. And I would like to bless Dobby. Dobby is, first of all, just like someone who's courageous within such strict boundaries, right? How we meet him of going to Harry's house and like really pushing up against a like literal magical spell of boundary of what he's allowed to say and what he's not allowed to say and stepping into just the fullness of his potential for what he can do for Harry is incredible. But I mean, probably because of what's going on in the world right now, for the first time, I really see Dobby as a refugee. Hmm. You know, his home culture of being a house elf was unsafe for him. Or of being a Malfoy Manor was unsafe for him. And through Harry and through his own tenacity, he's able to escape to this other culture. And he is endlessly curious about wizarding culture and about the relationship that he can have with Harry and Dumbledore. And it's a tragic story for Dobby. And just like, I think what we love about him is his constant curiosity and love and i think that they are totally tied together for him what about you who would you like to bless you know i'm a teacher in one of my primary vocations and so like i was thinking a lot about like what this looks like as a teacher and so i wanted to bless a teacher and i was going to bless professor sprout but we already talked about why professor sprout is great so i'll bless mcgonagall who i think Mm. is a teacher with some like intellectual humility but she really like wants students to write size like we're in book five now and there's that moment where they have to transfigure a mouse and lavender is skittish about it and mcgonagall is just like it's just a mouse (laughs) right like she's like recalibrating these children and she does it with neville too and does it with harry like she really treats maybe more than any other of the teachers including dumbledore for sure who i think infantilizes in these children sometimes she really treats these children generally as fully formed and complex people who have both strengths and weaknesses that they can figure out how to navigate on their own. And that doesn't mean that she's is always easy or right or warm towards the children, but I think that the children just really trust her and trust her to trust them when it counts. And that comes from like this idea of right-sizedness. She knows what she is. She's a teacher. She has certain responsibilities, which she will execute as faithfully as she can. And she demands exactly of these children what they are capable of. I think it's great. And so I'm going to bless McGonagall. Well, Matt, thank you so much for doing this special episode with me. And I'm going to go in February 
to the Greater Good Science Center conference and talk about what we learned. And it's just been such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Vanessa. And thank you to Daryl and to the, the Greater Good Science Center for their support. Matt, our big reminder today is that I am teaching a class in January, a class of reflection as to how to start 2024 with courage. And we are going to be doing a lot of sacred reading practices. And I really encourage everybody to check this class out. You can find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by ACAST. Special thanks this week to Laura Glass, Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Terkyle, Natalie Fulkertz, and Stephanie Balso. Funding for this episode was provided by UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center as part of its Expanding Awareness of the Science of Intellectual Humility initiative, which is supported by the John Templeton Foundation. I'll fix it up with mom and dad, then I'll call you. I know how to use a tele- felly tone. Oh, sorry. I'll fix it up with mom and dad. Then I'll call you. Oh, whoa. I'm having trouble getting this line reading done. Because then I'll call you. Then I'll call you. Then, then I'll, I'll call, call then, you. Then I'll call you. Then, then I'll, I'll call, call you. you. I, I think it's I all. <laughs> then I'll call you. Yeah. I'll call you. Right. Okay.